on the Eureka waterfront at 1F Street featuring Italian food, sushi, a teppanyaki bar, and a view of the bay. Also, a wide selection of wine and sake is available. The Bayfront Restaurant is open every day, 11 to 9.30 p.m., 443-7489. Got a great Thursday night talk. It's coming up next. Good evening and welcome to Thursday Night Talk. My name is Linda Stansberry, staff writer for the North Coast Journal. And I'm here uh, with Dr. William Herbrecht-Meyer, Professor of Religious Studies. Um, on the phone, we have Julia Pittner, who's the Internews Regional Director for Middle East and North Africa. And then right next to me, I have Lena Dalishe, mm-hmm. uh, who is also a professor at HSU. And uh, Lena, could you tell us a little bit about your discipline? Uh, I'm actually a history professor, but also the um, Middle East program at HSU. I teach classes in history, politics, and geography uh, of the Middle East. Wonderful. And I want to apologize to our listeners for all the rustling. Um, I'm with a couple professors, so we're all taking notes. And tonight we are talking about ISIS, Syria, uh, the Middle East, um, radicalization, and uh, many other things. It's a weighty topic, and we welcome your calls. So um, to get right into it, guys, um, ISIS, ISIL, or Daesh, what's the difference and which do we use? Well, as a native Arabic speaker, I can tell you all the speculations about why we should call them Daesh is not particularly accurate. Daesh doesn't mean anything in Arabic. It it is actually the acronym uh, for the Islamic State in uh, Iraq and um, the Levant. the whole, you know, it means run over or it's dismissive. It's not. They don't want it because it's not Dawla al-Islamiyya, which is the Islamic State. But it actually really means um, the Islamic State of uh, Iraq and the Levant. What we call them doesn't matter. I mean, not to put Shakespeare in, you know, connection to a horrible organization, but who they are is what really matters. I think what we should be concerned with. So for me, it works as well. Um, For all those who are named ISIS and have been suffering recently, maybe we should try to to find a different one. (laughs) That's a good point. That's going to be a very unpopular girl's name this year. And we do have uh, Julia Pittner on the line. Uh, Julia, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And um, what's your opinion on this uh, naming question? ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, what do you use in your uh, work? Well, because I'm mostly in, uh, in the Middle East, everybody refers to it as Daesh, which is the acronym, um, as was previously stated. I mean, the, it's, it's basically um, a historical progression um, for the ISIS or ISIL, you know, when, when we originally heard it named. Um, they were calling themselves the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. Um, and then they changed to the Iraq and Syria. And so in the region, it's mostly referred to as Daesh. Interesting. 
And thank you for joining us uh, from the Middle East. Are you calling from abroad right now? No, actually I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, excellent. I appreciate you calling in. Uh, Dr. Erbrichmeyer, can you put this in a little bit of context for us? Is there a particular weight uh, and historical context to calling this entity the, the Islamic State? Um, I think that Lena summarized it quite well in terms of what the actual name would be in terms of the particular words. I think that uh, to understand it from the point of view of the Islamic State, the notion that they're trying to establish a caliphate is very important because what they're trying to do um, from their own point of view is to reestablish a governmental system that is Islamic based on what was accomplished under the rule of Muhammad back in the 7th century CE, back in the 600s of the Common Era. And so their notion is that current political systems that we encounter in the democratic world or in monarchies or in various kind of secular democracies are all corrupted and flawed because the way God wants us to be is the way that God instructed Muhammad to rule in that time. So they, they see themselves as recreating a perfect form of governance as intended by God, and that's what the principle of the caliphate is. I understand. And um, so, Julia, just uh, really quick, um, Julia Pittner, what does that look like on the ground when you're um, actually in the Middle East? What is that uh, type of, um, what would be the word for it, uh, religious prison? Thank you. Government, it's governance. Excellent, yes. Uh, so what does that look like in action? From, from uh, that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's um, they're trying hard uh, to establish state-like entities. Um, so they have put together different uh, departments of uh, various things, and we've all witnessed their their PR arm. But they've also um, are recruiting doctors for their hospitals and trying to come up with with different kinds of um, social services. Yet at the same time, they are enforcing a very extreme form. I won't even, I'm not even sure I can call it Islamic law because some of it's tribal law um, based on, on tribal traditions. Um, some of it is based on um, interpretations of, of the Shura, which is not the Quran, um, but it's um, the Sharia, um, the sayings of the Prophet and the, the laws that came from that. Um, so some of it's very uh, draconian. Uh, as we know, um, and uh, they're, they're trying to do that. Um, but they are also at the same time fighting a fight and trying to take more land and more territory. And some of the other Islamic groups that are occupying the same space are also trying to do the same, each having their own version of governance and law, um, some less draconian than Daesh. Um, but um, then they fight each other over, over land and who controls what space. Um, for the rest of the region, they're really terrified of this group. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, for highlighting that. I mean, it is, it's kind of the, I guess, the dilemma of the modern time. How do you claim to represent um, an ancient ideology and uh, 7th century um, you know basically their whole idea is that they want to remodel as as uh, Bill said they want to remodel 
this caliphate. They want to remodel this model of the best Islamic society in the 7th century, except how do you do that in a modern time? How do you do that in a nation-state context? And yes, they have this whole challenge of like basically they're undermining this, the new analysis that they're trying to undermine. Um, they under, to undermine the uh, um, uh, Sykes-Picot divisions in the Middle East, except with, for all sakes and purposes, we live in a nation-state world, a world that is very much shaped by how a state is run. So they're having to face this dilemma. And one of the things I want to highlight is the religious authority of these people is very, very dubious. It is not, they don't actually have learned, um, into, uh, the top echelon at least, is, is not that the most learned Muslims in the community. Um, but that's one of the challenges with Sunni Islam is that it actually does not have a hierarchy of how do you build um, um, a, a religious legislator, um, which is much easier for Shias. But, but that being said, I want to stress how modern they are. I mean, she she mentioned Julia mentioned the PR machine. I mean, think about that. These people have some crazy effects. People doing that work for them, but that's because they're extremely grounded in modern times. But they are trying to present it as what true Islam is. And what I want to highlight is this is one interpretation of what Islam is that is actually having to deal with how do you interpret texts and practices from the 7th century in the 21st century. And one answer is, as Julia said, is tribal law, which becomes very, very significant in how they act and how they enact law. That makes sense. So what I'm hearing here is kind of a juxtaposition of uh, very modern um, recruitment and propaganda uh, efforts uh, against uh, some uh, very uh, ancient interpretations uh, of the text. No, modern interpretation of an old text. Okay, thank (laughs) you for clarifying that. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, I think that Lena's exactly correct in what she's saying. Let me just add this. Um, One of the things that's much underappreciated in the West is the genius of the Prophet Muhammad and of the magnificent transformation of ancient Arabian society that took place. And it's far too much to get into here, but scholarship both in the Islamic world and in the Western critical world among historians, religious studies scholars, and so on, have recognized that the kinds of transformations that were made of Arabic society at the time of Muhammad were nothing short of ex- of exceptional. I, I think probably you could argue that the most influential person in the history of the world is the Prophet Muhammad, um, both for uh, and primarily for good. But in the in the centuries since then, that was in the 600s. This was before English was a language. Maya. Apologies to my friends in English who are going to correct me on that. But this goes back to, like, before King Arthur or Beowulf. I mean, this is a long time ago. During that time, Islam was one of the major centers of civilization, and the great jurists and the great theologians of the Islamic tradition struggled with many different problems about how to keep the essence of that tradition alive as it moved from something that came from deep into the deserts of Arabia to be the center of civilization in places like Cairo and Baghdad and 
uh, you know, from all the way from Morocco to the Philippines. And they understood that it was necessary to have an expansive understanding of what the traditions were, an expansive way and a subtle way of interpreting the original texts so they could actually work in society. And, and during that time, Islam was a culture of uh, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious societies. The Ottomans, for example, prided themselves on their religious diversity in which there were several different branches of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all living in peace among them. And so I think this is important to understand in what Lena is saying, that these modern traditions of people like the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan or various other fundamentalist groups within the religion think of themselves as being ancient, but they are themselves not aware about how they're just taking up their local, regional, tribal traditions, believing that they're the true traditions, projecting them back into antiquity, and then saying, we're the ones that have the truth. And I'm not speaking as someone who understands this from an academic point of view. Of course I am, and of course academics would agree with me. But this is what 99% of the people that live in the Islamic world believe as well. Thank you. And um, I'd just like to remind our listeners, this is KHSU. My name is Linda Stansbury. We're talking about ISIS, Islam, um, radicalization, and other important topics with Dr. William Erbrechtmeyer, of the prof uh, Professor of Religious Studies, uh, Julia Pittner of Internews uh, Regional um, Africa and the Middle ne East, uh, Director for the Middle East and North Africa with Internews, and with Lena Delache, who is a, also a professor here at HSU. And the numbers to call in are 826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911. And Julia, I did have a quick question for you about the difficulties of reporting on this topic. This is something you must be seeing on the ground. I understand it's very hard right now to get accurate figures and accurate information uh, directly from ISIS-held territory. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it is quite difficult. And in fact, in a lot of those territories where it's possible around the edges, um, there are citizens who are reporting. And the difficulty is, of course, verifying that information. There are some, some good systems that have been instituted um, in the last, you know, five years, of course, because it's, it's all quite necessary. Um, but for, for reporters who are, um, they're really there aren't uh, the international media is not allowed of course the regional media is also not allowed and uh, a lot of reporters have been lost um have been killed um in in the war that's going on there or by daesh um or by the other islamic groups that are operating in northern syria um specifically um for those outside you know it's also a challenge because there are those who are supporting um Daesh, not necessarily the ideology, uh, but the idea um, of them, and going back to something that was mentioned earlier, um, they have uh, erased some of the colonial borders that were drawn in how they're operating, and so there is some support uh, in that respect. There's also support um, for some of the thinking um, and the ideology, of course, of the, of the Islamists there. Um, so it's also difficult sometimes for reporters in the rest of the region, and specifically in Lebanon uh, and in Turkey, where we saw two, um, two bloggers who were assassinated not so long ago because um, they were reporting on what was happening inside Syria in Raqqa. 
Um, and so it is, it's a very risky time for, for journalists right now. And so there's a lot of concern and a lot of effort to really verify information to make sure that it's accurate at the same time. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. What can you tell us about the sheer scale of um, displacement and also of people um, killed by this entity? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Uh, yes. What, what can you tell us about the, uh, keeping in mind it's hard to get accurate numbers, uh, what can you tell us about the scale of people displaced and also of people uh, slaughtered by Daesh or ISIS? To answer the last part of the question, it's very hard to know how many people have been killed by Daesh, um, because we know, of course, those who have been videotaped, um, but we don't know about all of those who have been killed because they didn't follow um, the the laws uh, and the rules uh, set by Daesh, um, and also whole communities that we heard, I think, um, about the Yazidis, um, who were massacred and forced uh, a lot of them into the mountains um, because of their religion and but many more have been forced out of their towns uh, f because they are um, Daesh has given them the chance to leave and when they do leave they are stripped of everything and sometimes not all the families are allowed to leave together we just don't know how many people have been killed um, but as, as far as this been displaced, there are, of course, as we know, two or three different things going on in Syria um, and in Iraq as well. It's not just Daesh and Nusra and uh, in northern Iraq there are two or three other groups that are also operating, but the, the war that's going on between um, Syria, uh, the government, the army, and these groups, as well as the U.S., Germany, France, and Britain uh, now bombing um, northern Syria and Iraq. So people are fleeing from both Daesh and from the war. And there have been millions, actually. Um, I think 1.6 million now in Turkey, um, 1 million, no, 600,000 in Lebanon, about 800,000 in Jordan. And we've seen the flow of refugees into Europe over this, uh, that's actually been happening over the course of the last two years. but in larger numbers this summer because of the increased tensions uh, inside Turkey. Um, uh, thank you, Julia, for highlighting the idea that there's actually a war here. I mean, I yeah. think a part of the <laughs> obsession with ISIS or Daesh or whatever you want to call it has distracted people from the fact that the Syrian regime has killed seven people for every one person ISIS killed and that the Syrian people have not been suffering only since Daesh came into the picture. 2011, when the revolution started, it started with a bunch of kids actually graffitiing a wall. Let's remember that. And those kids were imprisoned, and people went out to the street to protest that, and the Assad regime has been cracking down on its own citizens since then. So when you think about a Syrian refugee getting to the U.S., you know, I, one of my students presented this week, about Carson going to Jordan and talking to people and people telling him they want to go back to Syria. Yes, they want to go back to Syria, except they can't. Syria right now is a death trap because if Daesh didn't kill you, the regime would kill you. And if the regime didn't kill you, then how many countries did you count? Five. And then add to them Five. the Gulf countries, yeah. which are involved in bombing. No. Yeah. Do you think those bombs are actually 
targeting, you know, pinpointing warriors? No, they're killing civilians. You know what the Syrian regime uses to kill its civilians? Barrel bombs. I would like people to stop and think for a second what a barrel bombs, bomb mean. It's literally a barrel that is full, filled with explosives thrown down into a residential neighborhood. So when you think about that quote-unquote threat that is going to come into your country, think about that family that finds no other place to go to. Think about what brings a father. If you think about Alian, the, ch the child who was killed and then became very, very famous because he was photographic, think about him and think what brings parents to put their three-years-old kid on a boat like that. And the answer is a worse fate awaiting them in their country. Syrians want to live in their country, but all the time that we can't provide them a safe haven, we as people, but also as a part of people who are liable to international law, have a responsibility to save refugees, to give them a safe haven, as long as their country is not safe. And I think that's really important to stress. And if I could just add on to this, what Lena is saying, we also forget about um, the Syrians who are already refugees, um, like the Palestinians in Yarmouk camp, who were held mm -hmm. under siege for a year, and they were running out of food. And the first chance they got, they left, um, because they were already refugees, and now they're refugees again uh, as they flee Syria with the Syrians. Yes, and who were killed by the Syrian regime and then by ISIS. Yeah. You know, when ISIS got to the, the camp, I don't know if you saw the videos, Julia, yes, but the threatening of what we're going to do to the Palestinians was unbelievable. And I think only deaf ears can repeat these statements that we yeah. don't want these people amongst us. So uh, for context, I, I have heard the, the analogy of comparing um, the exodus of the Syrian people to um, Jewish refugees during World War II. Um, Bill, do you think that's an accurate analogy? Um, well, I think just extrapolating on what Lena just got through saying, that the refugees that are leaving Syria are leaving not because they want to leave their country, but because it's a death trap for them to stay there. I mean, if you, if you watch the various programs, Democracy Now! does, Amy Goodman the other day did a, a tour of a, a refugee camp um, in Calais where they're trying to get across the channel tunnel. So she was talking with the individuals that were involved. One of the guys that she interviewed was a 21-year-old man who had pictures of his little brother, his mother, and his father. But if he stayed there, Assad was going to put him in his army and lead him you know, into combat to fight in a war that he didn't want to fight in. Um, so in the sense that uh, you know, there's the famous case of turning away Jewish refugees at the New York Harbor and then that boat went back to Europe where most of the people on the boat died in the concentration camps. It's a somewhat different context, but the general principle is the same. People are leaving because they're in fear of their lives. And if we send them back into that context, then they face almost certain death. I have to say, with, with, to put it in a, in a broader context, I was watching Al Jazeera the other day, Al Jazeera America on cable, and they were doing a story about women from Central America with children coming up to the Texas border and we're violating our own immigration procedures and sending them back to an almost certain death or to a very violent situation 
because we're afraid of women and children who are being abused by the drug cartels and the gangs in Central America. It's, all of these are the same situation. When we're thinking of the people that are coming here as refugees or people looking for a safe haven, um, yes, there might be conceivably some terrorists among them, but that is such a minuscule proportion of the whole that we betray our values if we don't offer the safe haven to the people that are facing at the minimum violence, but in many cases almost certain death to stay where they are. So in that sense, I think it's exactly analogous to what was happening when we turned away Jews from the United States who went back to Auschwitz and Dachau and places like that. I believe that one of the things that kind of uh, brought this uh, conversation to a full boil in recent uh, weeks was the discovery that one of the men responsible for the attacks in Paris was Syrian and that it was, uh, he, he, he did come uh, to Paris as an immigrant. And I believe that kind of raised the, the, the tone of conversation. I'm not going to say elevated, raised the tone of conversation in the United States. So, uh, you know, putting it in that context, um, pretend that you're talking to your um, very uh, opinionated Republican neighbor. How do, you, how do you explain this to them? Hey, I would like to remind people that that actually was a fake passport yes, exactly. that got everyone on this like crazy frenzy of look the Syrian refugees well actually it was a fake passport and quite honestly apparently not very hard to get fake passport um, but the thing is the Islamophobic racist tenors of this language of the kind of the crazy phobia is Unbelievable, And this is the one thing I would agree about the analogy about the Holocaust. The analogy about the Holocaust is being made because, unfortunately, we've become calloused people who cannot be reasonable and sensitive to human suffering as is. As Bill mentioned, there is all these other people who need our help and our support and we and who the u.s actually has an international commitment i want to repeat that there's an international commitment according to treaties to help refugees but we've become so immune to anything that we need to be reminded of other times when americans shut their hearts and their doors and allowed people to die but we don't need that just remember yes you know what there probably are some people who are becoming extremists. But that is no reason to shut the door down to the desperate masses who are coming, basically getting out of there. And it's not that they have an option. I mean, if you think about it, so many of them have actually been under horrible conditions in Lebanon and Jordan for over two, three years. It's just that there is no more ability for the neighboring countries to host these people. So they have to get out. They have to basically, there's, they no longer can wait for the world to do something to end the crisis in Syria. And they can no longer live in this suspense of no other place. So we have to do, so they get out. And that's what we need to respond to. But the other thing I want to remind people is, do you know how long the vetting of refugees takes? Those refugees that got here last week, do you know how long that process took? Two years. I'm sorry, but anyone who's trying to argue they're talking about security are lying. 
it's pure simple xenophobia and Islamophobia that is presenting presented as a logic a logic of homeland security and we cannot allow that discourse to go on it is a very long process the the immigration process so just a reminder to our listeners you're listening to khsu thursday night talk i'm linda stansbury and we're here with uh julia pittner on the line from internews uh she's the regional director for the middle east and north africa uh lena Dalashe. Um, she's also a professor here at uh, HSU. And uh, Dr. Um, William Erbrechtmeyer, who's a professor of religious studies at HSU. And we do have a call on the line from Jake in Eureka. And if anyone else wants to call in, that number is 826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Hello. Um, I'd like to ask you about your opinion of Americans' foreign policy in terms of Syria and our role. Uh, in, in that conflict, um, it seems to me that what we're doing is basically extending the conflict, making it longer, uh, because we decided not to take a, uh, a side, you know, in this civil war. In the Vietnamese civil war, which we were involved in, we picked a side. Uh, in the Syrian civil war, we decided we were opposed to both sides, but we support the Kurds, who are, of course, a relatively small minority in northern Syria. Um, we're not going to be able to solve this situation, get this over with, get the civil war over with, until we actually pick a side try to help that side win. Uh, Julia, are you still on the line? Would you like to address that? Yes, I did. Um, it's a really difficult um, thing to, to... It's a difficult strategy because there isn't a clear side. Um, because as I mentioned, there are two different or three different conflicts going on. Um, you know, um, with uh, with the government, with the Assad government, you know there was the the popular revolution that started in 2011, and it created uh, the response um, was a very violent one, and so then it created this whole uh, different uh, phenomenon with the rise of, of what we're now calling Daesh, um, and them taking over territory in the midst of chaos because these groups like chaos. Um, and so it became more complicated. So there isn't just one side, because if you get rid of Assad right now, you're basically creating more chaos, and you would give uh, Daesh and the Nusra Front and uh, the four or five other uh, Islamist groups um, free reign uh, to take more territory. Um, and is that what we really want to do? Um, and at the same time, as we're fighting the... the um, the jihadists or the Islamists, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure exactly what to call them, um, but uh, these, the extremists in the northern part of, of Syria and uh, Iraq, um, then in essence, uh, people are saying we're helping Assad. Um, I'm not sure that's true because he still has a, 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 a shattered country and he still has to deal with the popular opposition, most of whom are outside the country right now. Um, but they still want a more democratic Syria. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated than just picking one side. I wish it was a little bit easier um, because it might be more clear. Um, but from people sitting in the region, you also have um, regional interests in Syria um, so that there isn't agreement um, on how to proceed, even within the region. 
of whether Assad should go or Assad should stay. You have some countries who say that Assad should stay and some who say that they should go, that he should go. And then you have others who are some who are supporting um, some of these other groups and, and some who are fighting against them. And so it's and some of them are our allies in the region. And so it's it's pretty confusing at the moment. Yeah, that, this is a very sticky wicket, of course. Yeah. I would, I would back it up 60 years to about the time I was born, 1953. Prior to 1953, the United States was uh, greatly loved throughout the Middle East because we were understood to be a country which stood for self-determination in the region. But in 53, we overthrew the Iranian government. We supported a brutal dictatorship there for the next 25 years. And then when that dictatorship was overthrown, we supported Saddam Hussein in a brutal war against the Iranians, which killed a million Iranians. Of course, we've been supporting Israel, who's been brutal in their uh, pursuit of the Palestinians. And then, of course, we've also invaded Iraq and completely dismembered that country, destroying all of its social institutions. In all of this, we seem to think that the solutions to these problems are violence and military intervention. So where I would approach the, the caller's question is to ask whether we think we're actually going to solve the problems that we're facing with one more military incursion, with one more application of weapons. I, I'm not such a peacenik that I think that some application of military force might not be necessary and that we maybe need to be involved. But we need to start thinking about ways that we operate by actually solving real problems rather than just going in and replacing one group with another or replacing one group with our own leadership. The problem that we face now, and what Julie was saying I think is really very important, the complexity of this. Because not only are all these different groups in place, but throughout Iraq and Syria, We've basically been, it's not entirely us, but it's very largely us, we've destroyed all of the social institutions which would have been possible, which would have been necessary in order to build them democratic systems. You can't just rebuild social institutions, things like a free press, like an independent judiciary, like a good uh, education system and so forth. You just don't build those things overnight. And so what we've done is to create a problem, right? So earlier... Uh, Lena mentioned the problems that were associated with the Sykes-Picot Agreement at the end of World War I, where French and British basically carved up the Middle East and established the borders with no meaningful consultation with the people in the region. Um, we are still living with the effects of that. My thinking is that Bush's war in Iraq, the invasion of 2003, probably has set us back another hundred years because it will take generations now to rebuild the, the problems that have been created by the fracturing of the nation states, as imperfect as they were, they've been fractured, and it, which, which descends people back into tribalism, which makes people want to exact vengeance against their former enemies and all that sort of thing. Lena is much more familiar, I think, with the, the, the details, and probably Julia than I. But, I. but the notion of disentangling the problems that we've created is the major thing we need to think about doing. That's a long-term exercise. And if we go in with more brutal military force, we're just going to make it more tangled. And I think that's kind of the underlying um, problem, as I see it, in what Julia was saying. And if I can, may, if I can add to this, is I want to stress one of the wells of the strength and, um, and organization of, of Daesh is actually the Ba'ath 
regime, the, Syri- the Iraqi Ba'ath regime um, officers. So the whole American philosophy that we can fix the world by moving things around needs to be revisited. I mean, the devathification, which was at the core of the American project of creating quote-unquote democracy in Iraq, was disastrous. It is those people who then go on to kind of support creating Daesh. They're secularists. They're adamant secularists. The Ba'ath regime had nothing to do with the religion. But they found an ideology that they could manipulate and work with, and they found enough zealots who basically were desperate and had nothing enough. So I don't... I, I think when Americans try to think about the role they have to play in the world, they have to remember it is not exactly their puppet show. And I agree with Julia that the situation in Syria three years ago would have been completely different. The situation in Syria right now is not one that would be resolved by bombings. That is one thing that I'm 100% for. I don't know what the solution is, but bombing more Syrian civilians is certainly not the answer to anything. Because if you think about it, who is being bombed? And I'm sure Julia knows better than I do because she's on the ground, but that's not the, the main victims have been throughout the brutal four years of the Syrian crisis uh, are the Syrian people. And they're being excluded. So now people are going to go to Vienna and have their own conver- their, ha- their talks. And they're deciding, the U.S. and the Europeans are deciding who gets in and who gets out if they end up actually really following through with any of it. And Bashar gets to go there, Assad, the Syrian president, but Syrian people don't really get a voice there. And that's a part of the problem. A part of the problem is that the Syrian people got up and tried to say, we've been under a totalitarian regime for long enough, which actually has been imposed partially because of the structure of Cold War dynamics. And they have no way of getting out from underneath it because they're still now, even though the Cold War has ended, are now in the crossfire of new world order one where Iran and um, uh, Saudi are in this, like, fight for a leadership of the Muslim world, quote-unquote, which neither of them really can lead, but in which they play these states as pawns in their game. And in the U.S. in 2011, it was all about being anti-Iran, right? That was the policy that was taken in the U.S., and now it's kind of getting different because there's something worse than Iran, which is Daesh. And then we ha- how do we deal with that? But the thing is, for me, it's like it's not the U.S.'s call. It's not Europe's call. It's the Syrian people's call. What do we do? Our responsibility is not about what are the best interests of outside forces. It is what do we do to minimize Syrian victims, but also to allow the Syrians to get out of that impasse. Julia, what do you think? Well, I, I was just also thinking about, you know, the the role of Russia and Turkey also, because, you know, we have a reinvigorated Russia who's uh, reasserting their influence in the region, um, and the current uh, current impasse with, with Turkey um, and the Kurds. We also can't forget the Kurds who are in the mix um, in northern Iraq and in Syria, um, because they have their own national aspirations as well. Um, and so it's it is multi-leveled. But again, I agree um, that the that the escalated bombing isn't going to give us much more than than what was happening before. In fact, it's giving us more casualties and more refugees. 
and the people, you know, the people uh, in Syria and and Iraq, um, you know, the Muslims and the Christians and the the Kurds uh, and all the different ethnic and religious groups that exist uh, in those areas are are the ones that are suffering. Great, thank you. Um, so I'd like to remind our listeners they can call in at 826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911. Tonight we're talking about um, ISIS, ISIL, and Daesh. Um, we're talking about the Middle East. We're talking about Islam. And uh, we're with Dr. Herrichsmeyer of the, uh, of HSU and um, Dr. Dalashay of um also of hsu a history professor thank you <laughs> thank you professor and also julia pittner uh internews regional director for the middle east and north africa and um it does look like we have a caller on the line hold on just a moment okay uh go ahead caller oh, hello hi Sorry, Mark of Blue Lake, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, you... Hello? Yep, you're still there, go ahead. Okay, I'll stand right still so the phone doesn't do something with the electricity in the room. <laughs> Quite a storm out there. Yeah, well, my comment was, as I've watched this unfold, I was raised during the days of the Irish problem in, in Northern Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics, and see an awful lot of this going down in the Middle East is pretty much Shia and Sunni, two Muslim sects vying for power. And what happened in Ireland is there really wasn't any peace until the IRA started bombing in London. And once they started getting the attention of the people who were actually pulling this puppet strings that were making things difficult for them, then someone in the world decided it was time to take it seriously to maybe think about resolving this problem with some international negotiations. And I kind of wonder if Paris isn't the same conversation in that we divided up the Middle East, the U.S., England, and France, arbitrarily without consulting, as the man said earlier in the program. And now they're finally got a group together that is like, irritated with this intervention from the West, and now that they've taken the bombs into the West, now the West is going to figure out they have to deal with this in some sort of reasonable level of negotiations. And I think this continued to bomb Syria thing is on the wrong page. Those people have a legitimate right to govern themselves, and if they have a religious beef, they need to be able to sort that out between them. But bombing them from outside, how is that going to help anything other than create more global pollution? Very good. Thank you, Mark. So you can bomb the world to pieces, but you can't bomb it into peace, as someone once said. Um. I, I would say one thing I think I agree with you completely. Is it Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that would agree with Mark. And, and this is something I think that we don't appreciate as fully as we should. Um, uh, especially if you think about France and the U.S. as being targets currently. One, one of the primary reasons why France is one of the targets of Islamic extremists is the fact that they meddled so thoroughly in the culture of North Africa that they 
had large numbers of people that came into France from the colonies, and then those people have not really had the greatest of opportunities in France. So it's a sense that the empire has come home to them. Similarly, we're a target now as well because we have meddled so much that the problems are coming to home to us. Now, I think the same thing was true in the Irish situation where the, the conflict in Northern Ireland really went back to English imperialism against the Irish. Whether the bombing in the home of the, of the colonizers is actually going to change anything or whether it actually did change anything, that I don't know. That's a more complex question. But I, but I do agree that having created some of the problem and now inheriting some of the problem, we're certainly not going to make the problem better by doing the same thing that caused the problem in the first place. <clears throat> well, thank you for bringing the Irish um, example, but actually, for me, bringing the Irish example is a good opportunity to highlight that exactly as the Irish conflict was not a religious conflict, the conflict in the Middle East is not a religious conflict. The conflict in Ireland was about colonialism, about a settler colonial community, i.e. what um, basically the Protestants who were originally immigrants from um, England that were sent by the British Empire to Ireland to colonize it, to dominate the Catholic. That is what created the conflict. The conflict was called Protestant against Catholic, but it was really never about that. It was about a dominant group, a privileged group that undermined and underprivileged a different group. And that's exactly what is happening. It's a struggle for power in the Middle East. If we call it Sunni and Shiri, it's not going to change the fact that the Assad regime is adamantly secular, has always been secular. The Ba'ath party, which the Assad regime is a part of, has always been secular. It is only now that it is remembering that it is actually Shi'i, Alawi, etc. But what I think the relevance of the Irish example reminds us is actually it wasn't the bombing that brought the U.S. into pushing for a solution in Ireland. It was the change of the global dynamic and the end of the Cold War, which brought the U.S. to actually lean on its partner, the U.K., towards a solution for the Irish problem, which is, by the way, still far from over. But that actually tells us something. It is when people are interested in a solution, when the U.S. is actually interested in a solution, is when things start moving. And that's what we need to remember. Excellent. And we do have another caller on the line, Eric from Eureka. Yes, hi. Uh, listen, I have a question about the climate here in the United States and how um, maybe the, uh, Muslims here are addressing it. I'm, I'm really concerned about the climate. I, I find uh, that uh, stuff I'm seeing just not on the Internet, but even things that I'm hearing that people saying it has me a little bit nervous that there are i mean there are have been threats and acts of, of violence and whenever we hit the news and we seem to have one every week of some mass shooting or something i, I find myself thinking please make it somebody who isn't of middle eastern origin and of course it only happened once i mean we have one every other week and they make i mean I'm not, i don't want to say it's not a big deal it's a big deal what happened but i I'm wondering if uh, any of the people in the panel here have had any personal experiences that they want to talk about um, as a result of the climate that's been whipped up by political figures. I think Donald Trump may be towards the end of his um, 
of his peak, but then they keep saying that. Um, but it seems like everybody's turning on him, even the Prime Minister of Israel today turned on him. Um, so I'm wondering, but there are uh, Muslim organizations that are, are working to counter terrorism. There's not in our name. There's um, uh, a group that was raising money for the victims in San Bernardino. Um, I know it's kind of a multi-level question, but what you know, when, what what are your feelings and experiences regarding the current climate, and um, and uh, what are local organizations doing about it, and are there any particular organizations that you think we should support? Uh, Julia, would you like to start off on this one, especially speaking from a media perspective? Well, and especially speaking from Washington D.C. today. Mm. Yeah where the um you know the center for islamic american relations was was attacked um and i believe their sister organization in la also um you know where they had uh, they had a scare um uh, here they were sent an envelope of of uh, white powdery stuff and on in the note it said you know be prepared to die um and you know they and the in the, the same thing in LA and their in their organization there and it's really a shame because these people are Americans whether they're Jewish Americans Christian Americans atheist Americans um, or Muslim Americans it doesn't matter they are Americans and we are all Americans and what what is extremely frustrating from a media perspective is the continual coverage of the extremism that's happening not just here but everywhere and there is a rise in extremism that's very dangerous and it threatens us more than than even dash because you know and you know un, i have to say unlike uh, the conflict in ireland you know that it isn't about land and dash doesn't have the popular support that the ira had in ireland um they have really no uh, popular support um with people who are originally from that country the syria and and uh, in iraq i mean I, Lena was very accurate in talking about the history of the rise there, you know, and the disenfranchisement of the secular Ba'ath party in Iraq. Um, but in Syria, the tradition in Syria is really one of, of tolerance and secularism, not not of this kind of religious um, extreme uh, extreme form of Islam. Um, but you know, we're seeing a rise of extremism and intolerance globally, and it's um, a little bit frightening. So to clarify, when you use the word extremism, you're talking about extremism, not just Islamic extremism, right. but oh. political extremism in the United States. Political extremism, racist extremism, all types of extremism. You know, and for example, in Myanmar, um, the the Muslim community there is is being erased um, by the Buddhist. Buddhists. You know, and so that's a, that's a Muslim community that's under threat from um, an extremist faction in the Buddha relig Buddhist religion. You know, and so that's it's uh, it's just seems to be a global trend. Yeah. If I could just make a comment about that, I paid a lot of attention over the years to violence in the name of religion. It's been one of the major things that I've studied, and it's and, and Lena made this point, and I think that uh, Julia is making the point too. But let, let's just make this explicit. Usually when, there's an old saying, actually this comes from a Muslim emperor, I believe, kings invade for money and wealth and profit. They use religion as their excuse. Of course, religion is always involved with violence because you have to justify your violence and religion is the natural uh, justifier within a society. When American armies go off to war, 
Christians pray to their God. When the British, they pray to a Christian God. Somebody else prays to another God. So what's happening in Myanmar, for example, it's not Buddhists in any real Buddhist sense that are doing it. It's people that have their, it's a military dictatorship that's doing what they're doing. And because they're speaking to people that are culturally Buddhist, they claim to do it in the name of Buddhism. And the same thing is happening in the Middle East when you have different tribes, different groups, and so on. They're doing things. I mean, I could, this is something that struck me, and I'm sure this must be true. Lena and, and uh, Julia can probably tell me whether I'm right. But if you think about the history of what happened in Iraq and Iran since 1979 when the Iranian Revolution started, the the Ba'athists, under the leader of Saddam Hussein, made a horrific attack against the Iranian Shiites. And they were also making simultaneously horrific attacks against the Shiites within Iraq. And the Sunni Kurds. Pardon me? And the Sunni Kurds. Yes. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and, so, and so then, once the United States came in and took away Saddam Hussein and put the, Su the, the Shiite government in place, what they did against the former Ba'athists and against the Sunnis, I'm sure was very largely taking vengeance on the people that had abused them for a long period of time. To be very clear about this, this never has to do with doctrines and religion. It has to do with my group and your group. And if your group hurt my group, now my group's gonna hurt you back. But since the groups are partially defined in terms of their religious identity, what we do is we think that it's a religiously caused strife, but the strife is not caused by anything that's particularly religious. It has to do with political issues, land tenure, um, who has the jobs, who doesn't have the jobs, who has the control of the courts, and who gets put in prison unjustly, and all of those sorts of things. But religion is just one of the markers that defines that. In the United States, for example, much of the violence, much of the problem that we have is done by the marker of race. But the real issues had to do with poverty and political rights and so on. And so we have to change not just the ideology of race or just the ideology of religion or just the ideology of a particular political party or nationalism. We have to deal with the real world issues of justice, which had to do with uh, resources, power, uh, education, health care, clean water, and so forth. Mm. I if I may, I want to thank you, Eric, for, for raising this question, because I think it is really, really important for Americans to stop and look deep and hard on themselves and what they are doing. I mean, it is very easy to go against Trump, because quite honestly, he's doing it. He's making it so easy to go after him. But the thing is, by going after him, we're taking ourselves off the hook. By going after him, we say only these extreme expressions are bad but then our little you know islamophobia our little latent racism is okay we can live with that we can denounce extreme islamophobia but we live with the fact that we're gonna accept you know there was um in dc today some uh, an iranian american woman wrote this thing about how she was accosted for 10 minutes on the subway with, for being for appearing Muslim, she was actually just wearing the scarf because it was cold, but she looked dark enough for this person to cost her for ten minutes, in, ending with spitting on her, and not one person on that train in D.C. in this like multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, diverse you know probably one of the most diverse cities in the U.S. Not one person stood up 
And then I think, Eric, I want to thank you because that actually says, hold the mirror to your face. Forget about Donald Trump because being anti-Donald Trump is easy. But what are you doing to re-manifest this Islamophobia? What are you doing to contribute towards racism? And what are you doing to fight this racism and to say, you know what? Yes, there are extremists. But as you said, you know what? If you look at the San, Bern uh, San um, Bernardino. Bernardino incident, it's much more American than it is ISIS. ISIS. It is a mass shooting that is done exactly in the American tradition. So let's talk about it as an American issue, not a Muslim issue. And let's face what America has to face, whether it's racism based on color lines, look at the African-Americans and Black Lives Matter movement and think about it, or whether it's the new thing, right? It's less okay to be racist against blacks, so let's be racist against Muslims. No, let's actually, as an American society, face the issues that we deal with and think about what is it that enables this racism to be a part of this society. Very good. With only a couple minutes left, uh, Julia Pittner, did you have any final thoughts? Well, I just want to thank everybody for the conversation because it really is quite a good one. And um, to hear some thoughtful um, questions also, thank your callers. Um, it gives me a little bit of hope, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that uh, it is, you know, the region is in a very complex and critical situation. and. You know, I really, really encourage, you know, your listeners and, and all of us to think about our, our own humanity and put ourselves in those uh, people's places, you know, so that we're talking about not allowing refugees to come to our country. How, I mean, really, um, where is our humanity? Because if it was us, we would want our neighbors to care for us, and we should think about that. And uh, the, the the fact that Daesh exists and... Uh, is, is actually killing more uh, Muslims than it is killing uh, anyone else mm -hmm. um, is also something to be remembered. It's not that they are um, coming to get us um, because really they have a different a different agenda. But And I would say, and to go back to what something Lena said earlier, and I'm sorry to take all this time, but um, the, the Syrian passport and that attack in, in Paris had the exact effect that Daesh was hoping in that they were counting on Europe and the West to, to begin to really um, villainize the refugees because they have themselves been telling the refugees that they are, they are operating against Islam by leaving their countries and they want them to come home. And this was the point, to, to scare the refugees not to go anywhere, to tell them they would not be wanted anywhere. And the disenfranchisement um, is a big problem in all these countries which is why most of the, the people who are doing these attacks um, are people who are from their own countries. Um, they're from France, they're from the U.S., they're from England, because they themselves are feeling disenfranchised and unwanted. Thank you very much, Julia Pittner, um, Internews Regional Director for the Middle East and North Africa, and also thank you to uh, Dr. William Erichmeyer, Professor of Religious Studies here at HSU and to Professor Lena Delashesh, uh, Professor of History here at HSU. And uh, thank you to all of our callers and all of our listeners. My name is Linda Stansberry, staff writer for the North Coast Journal, and this has been Thursday Night Talk.
listening to Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. We love to get feedback on our programs. Please email Thursday Night Talk at KHSU and like our Facebook page. That's Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. And thank you to our producer, Geraldine Goldberg. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeff Kreider. My name is Damien. I've been your studio engineer tonight. Stay tuned. We've got no room for squares. Coming up next.